0: Hello and welcome to Living Proof, the Isaac Newton Institute podcast. My name is Dan Aspel and I'm your host. In this episode, myself and Christy Marr are joined by not one, but two guests, both of whom are celebrated speakers and communicators of mathematics in their own right. They are Katie Steckles and Ben Sparks. Between them, they have a tremendous amount of insight and advice, both broad and technical, to share. It's a fascinating and valuable hour of conversation. We hope you enjoy the episode. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce two different guests, as well as Christy Marr, who's joining me in the INI side of things. Christy?
1: Hi, nice to see
0: you. But we've got two guests with us today, and they are Katie Steckles and Ben Sparks. Katie, nice to see you today. Hello, hi. And you too, Ben. Thanks, hi. So, for the benefit of listeners who don't know you yet, I was wondering if I might ask you to give a brief introduction to yourselves, and um, uh, it's very obvious that they could look you up online as well, and you both have fabulous websites which give excellent biographies of yourselves, but shall we go with you first, Katie? Uh, Yeah,
2: well, I guess... uh, The way that I usually describe myself is that to say that I am a mathematician Uh, and I know there are some people who would potentially disagree with that given that I don't currently research mathematics in a maths department Uh, but I have a PhD in maths and I've spent approximately the last 10-12 years uh, working in maths outreach so I do public engagement with maths, I go and give talks, I go into schools, I talk at science festivals, uh, I write about maths, I make videos for YouTube, I do podcasts as I am currently doing um, on various different topics. Uh, And I also now lecture a little bit in a university as well. So basically any form of uh, communicating maths to people who are not me uh, is essentially my job. And I've I've been doing that freelance for quite a long time. Um, I've uh, won various awards and kind of had various different roles in different organisations during this process. Uh, But essentially, I've got experience of doing a variety of types of public engagement, uh, including Uh, all kinds of ridiculous projects like theatre shows and art gallery residences and world record attempts and large-scale mass participation maths engagement projects so uh, a slightly varied cv i guess um but all on the theme of essentially getting maths across to people
0: wow that was wonderful what a fantastic job that sounds like there's people listening to this thinking how do i do that i'm sure um ben how about yourself
2: yeah, how
3: do we do these things, Katie? Um, it is hard to describe our jobs regularly, and it's hard to do it quickly. And it's that position, a bit like you've just asked us. Like, but if a taxi driver asks you, "What do you do?" You don't have that long. And I've I've usually resorted to I'm a math, math teacher, and I was a math teacher in secondary schools for ten years. But while I was doing that, I was already trying a little bit of more more performance maths or or uh, large scale workshops and talks. And now that's really my job. I'm a mass communicator for want of a better phrase. And I work for the advanced math support program, which is a government funded project to support mass education. But I do a lot of outreach for them some teacher training and teacher professional development too. But I I feel very lucky to be for half of my time employed by them to talk about bits of maths to students quite often that might be worth knowing about, even if they're not going to be on an exam. Like, that that's the remit, and that's a a relief as a teacher to remember that there are lots of bits of the subject that didn't need an exam to validate them to be worthwhile or exciting. But that's half a job for the AMSP, and I'm based for them at the University of Bath because they employ me through the university. And so the other bits of my job – I told you this wasn't short, sorry. Uh, That's quite The two other bits of my job, um, partly freelance as a mass communicator, much like Katie, and I work with Katie regularly on all, all these range of crazy projects including talking, delivering stuff, writing, making crazy art things. But also then at the University of Bath, I teach on a third-year undergraduate course called Communicating Maths, which feels relevant. But it's quite a surprising course for undergraduates to choose who are studying mathematics, because it focuses not on doing maths, but communicating it to other people. And it's desperately important, but it's nice to see undergraduates having a chance to sort of consciously focus on that aspect. And that's that's the sort of various portfolios of my life at the moment.
0: And people might be wondering, you've hinted at it there, why we're having you both on the podcast at the same time. Uh, Christy, mm-hmm. do you want to say a little something about uh, the event that you went to where you saw Ben and Katie uh, presenting together?
1: I would love to, actually, because this was this is the whole reason why you're here, really, is because so I went to um, an LMS-organised workshop on communications, and it was hosted and led by um, both of you. And immediately um, afterwards, I said to Dan, we need to get these two onto our um, a Living Proof podcast. And that was really because I, well, I learned a lot on the course, but more than that, I thought it was very special what you were doing. And I thought I loved the dialogue between the two of you. And I thought there was something very um, magical about that. And you really drew people in. And I just, I really wanted to tease out that a bit and how. It felt that um, the two of you together was so much greater than the sum of the two halves and the dialogue and the interaction you had between the two of you, and I just loved that. So do you want to talk a bit about how, that, how that's come along? How long have you have been working together? Um, how it came about?
3: I mean, I, I, I have instinctive reactions to what you said, and I'm sure Katie does too, but, uh, tell me if you agree or disagree, Katie, if I say that during lockdown in particular, Katie and I both had to do a lot more work online. And although we'd worked together lots and lots before, we found very quickly, I think, working online that the, um, the double presenter thing working online became almost not just an upgrade, but almost necessary because what working with two presenters, does is force a conversational tone that we all know uh, is dangerously easy to lose in online situations. If one person is just monologuing, because of the whole lack of feedback of the online world, monologuing and, and just sort of like pouring words into a camera with no feedback from the audience starts to get boring really quickly. It happens in real life too, but uh, online, we've, Katie and I have both found that we're working off each other. Helped us keep it alive. Is that is that true for you, Kate? Yeah,
2: I mean, just to stop you from monologuing there, but. Uh, yeah, I think anyone who's done any kind of presentation online in, in whatever context, in teaching or in, in anything else, will have found that it's actually really quite grim and lonely just talking to a camera. Um, and especially in some circumstances, depending on the setup, you might not be able, be able to even see the videos of the people you're talking to. Um, and what we found was that in those situations, because especially if, like if you work with schools, there are often rules about what they can and can't put on camera and that kind of thing. Um, having someone on screen to talk to actually makes it a lot less difficult Um, but it also enhances it in other ways so uh, kind of a lot of the online stuff that we do we end up running little bits of tech behind the scenes we're running various online activities that people can engage with Uh, you know we want to try and make it look slick we want a bit of production values going on Uh, and having a second person there means that you can do things like one person works that while the other person's talking you can also tell each other if something's gone wrong that isn't yeah. immediately apparent which is often a case online uh you know I'm, I'm sharing my screen does that come through okay you've got the other presenter there to just go yep yeah, that's fine rather than having to rely on the audience to do that um, and obviously all of this has been a massive learning process for for us and for everyone um, and i think a lot of the things that we've picked up have made it really clear to us that um, it's it's much more kind of engaging to watch two people talking to each other than it is to watch one person talking um, and it it helps in all these other ways as well.
3: It's interesting that mathematics also has a reputation for being quite didactic as a communication subject or a teaching in and we're both keen that mass communication doesn't end up being more of that, that good examples mm. of mass communication is, is conversational, human, interactive and, and particularly when you're working online that you have to make a special effort to make that happen but it helps having two people yeah. to keep and the banter alive and things think, like that i
2: think as well as it being conversational there's also you can do an element of the whole sort of audience proxy thing um because one thing we're really keen not to do in terms of talking about maths is this, it's this nightmare scenario where someone comes on and just pontificates about this subject uh, <laughs> and they say oh and this is obvious and this is very simple and this is trivial and people watching are thinking Well, I don't find that really obvious. So obviously I'm just bad at maths. So I'm just going to switch off and not even engage with this. Um, And that's the absolute nightmare. If you're trying to present maths, you want people to be on board. You want people to be trying and making an effort and getting involved. Um, so we can do that thing where one of us goes, oh, actually, Ben, can you, can you explain that to me a bit more? Or did you mean this? And, and we can kind of provide that audience proxy role that we're kind of asking the questions that we imagine the audience would be asking. Um, yep. If we spot that someone's either missed out a bit of explanation or, um, you know, there's something that they're talking about that isn't necessarily as obvious as they think it is, we can kind of jump in and, and kind of provide that role.
0: It sounds like you've gained a lot of proficiency, as we all had to, with online tools over the last couple of years. Has there been a considerable reward from that? I mean, obviously, you can reach a lot more people a lot more frequently if you're not having to have so much travel involved and not having to go to physical events, which require a lot of logistical setup. Uh, Has it been a good thing? Has it been a good thing for you both? I think
2: it's mixed. (laughs) Yeah, it's mixed, uh, I think, because as you say, there's definitely um, a broader reach so people can... Join in with things that otherwise would involve a lot of travel, both in terms of the presenters Us, Uh, obviously we live at opposite ends of the country. So we're not going to be able to work together unless we actually go somewhere and meet up. Um, And certainly prior to the pandemic, we did often have a lot of video meetings where we would work out what we were going to do at the event. A few weeks time where we were going to be in the same place and um, it also means the audience can join from from various different places and I know there's a lot of people who found it really helpful to be able to um, join events that otherwise would be logistically too difficult for them to get to um, and as we, we often try and reinforce with people there are things that you can do online that you can't do as easily yeah. in person um, kind of interactive stuff and getting people using computers and technology and thinking about maths in that way as well. Um, But equally, it's got disadvantages too, because um, obviously a lot of us have found being online, being on video calls, the time is really incredibly draining um and it's you know it's proven to be more tiring than having a conversation in person or watching a person in a room there's less places to hide i guess if you're on camera you can't necessarily just sit there looking bored because people can see you so people feel like they need to kind of engage in a different way with what's happening online and also not everyone has access to technology to do that you know there are some households where you've got four kids sharing a laptop Um, you know, for some people moving a thing online means that actually instead of everyone going along and doing the thing at the local library or in the local school thing, that they're not as likely to be able to join in. Um, And I think it's going to be a very difficult tightrope that we all walk now because there are people saying, oh, we need to carry on doing the online stuff because it makes it more accessible to more people. Um, But also to reintroduce in person stuff in a way that makes it not feel like there are two different things being offered i guess and it's very difficult to run something that is hybrid that is both online and in person at the same time um but that's the kind of thing that we could potentially do to try and fix that or to try and bridge that gap but equally just running both types of events um you know and uh, it's a big question that i think a lot of people are going to need to engage with
3: the online world uh, as you've said dan mate is more accessible than you can reach reach vast audiences and people can guest on your show from across the world but there remains this basic organic missing part where the subtleties of being in a classroom or being in a lecture theater with an audience physically occupying the same space and seeing the same things and hearing the same things is impossible to recreate and the amount of effort that Katie and I have gone through to try and replicate some of those things through tech interventions is a lot of effort for very slight payoff. And it helps to make online feel more interactive, but it cannot replace that organic feeling of being in the same place and sharing a physical moment. And that, particularly when you're not just doing, here is my drony hour-long presentation, which actually does replicate remarkably well. It's called a video. <laughs> but if you're running a live event, the organic nature of being in the same room together is is quite subtle and strong and very hard to replace with online. However, doing both, as Katie's pointed out, and we're all going to get used to it, we, we've got to adapt. But I, I do miss being in a room and seeing people's little smirks and, and bouncing off that. That's part of being a teacher, I think, but also very much even more so being part of a, an entertainer or performer. And that weird crossover role that Katie and I find ourselves in Not quite teachers, not quite comedians, definitely not funny enough necessarily, but the the (laughs) idea that we are actually inspiring and trying to entertain as well as educate needs those subtle in-person organic things quite often.
0: Yeah, I, I personally attended at least two gigs during lockdown where you watched whatever band you bought tickets for perform on a stage. I thought it must be the strangest thing in the world for them. Every song finished to be met with total silence. But, you know, that there's mm. a few 10,000s yeah. of people watching elsewhere. Christy, you had a question.
1: Yeah, I um, something that I found really useful in the workshop that you gave Um uh, was you talked a little bit about some of the kits that you use. And I know you can't demo it here, but you can maybe describe it. And what, what struck me was that actually you could get kit that was pretty effective for mass communications at not a vast budget. You know, you didn't have to have the full um, uh, recording, audio suite, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and you could actually do some pretty nifty things. And I loved how the two of you were playing with demoing some of these things um, uh, during the workshop session. And I, I just wondered whether you um, might be able to because uh, I'm sure a lot of people listening would, would think, actually, I'd really love to get involved in this and I don't quite know where to start. So maybe you might say your favourite piece of kit.
3: Do you mean online kit specifically or yeah, I, in-person I think, kit? I, I
1: think for... Because I think a lot of people have already developed the... Um, tools of trade for, particularly lots of our audience, who academics, and you know, know what they like to do um, in person, but don't quite know what they would do, you know, how, you know, a split camera or something like that, you know. Um, and I, you had some really nice tips there of, you know, pieces of software that you use. And I thought it would be lovely if you yeah. could share your favourites. Uh, well, I think
2: the, the important thing that we've tried to get across to people, certainly during the sort of lockdown times where everyone was being kind of forcibly Caught, you know, requ- required to do this sort of stuff online. Uh, was that it's not essential to shell out thousands of pounds for, for equipment. And a lot of the time, the camera in the laptop that you've already got, the microphone in the laptop you've already got, uh, will be perfectly adequate. Um, and there's just a few sort of simple things that we advise people to sort of, I guess, because the thing you're putting out to people is just this rectangle that's your video, right? So anything outside of that, they can't see. Um, and essentially, it's about making sure that what they can see works and makes sense. And the, the things like having a a background that is, a balance between not too cluttered, not too plain, I guess, something that gives a little bit of interest, but not distraction. Um, Making sure the lighting is good. So having the lighting coming from behind the camera. uh, So facing the window rather than having the window behind you. You've certainly seen some people presenting with a window behind them that are just a silhouette because, uh, you know, laptop webcams can't deal with uh, massive differences in light levels. So having a good lighting on your face um, and then just having, you know, a microphone that's well-placed, that's not knocking into something while you're talking um, and, and also just getting someone else to watch and listen to your video output to tell you whether or not there are issues with it. Um, and it seems like a really simple thing, but there are so many people I've seen that are inaudible or not visible um, or they're tiny in the bottom of the screen. You know, have, your, have I think the rule is have your eyes about two thirds of the way up the screen. Uh, is a, no, it's Ben's just moved. On the, on the video, that I can see of Ben. Um, but, you know, making sure that, that, Kind of the framing is is nice and that kind of thing, and um, just to give yourself the, the best possible presentation, and all of that can be achieved really simply just by moving objects around in your house and using kit that you already have. Um, but yeah, it's worth think-
3: commenting that those bits of advice are really. They're surprisingly important because if you get them wrong, everyone else doesn't get past those bits if they can't hear you very well or they can't see very well. That's their overriding reaction. And those bits of advice apply in person as well. And people who've who've got used to presenting in person pay should pay attention to the lighting in the room and the audio in the room. And these things are secondary things, but if you don't pay attention to them, they distract. However, if you sort that out in an online setting, it's much easier to control because you're not moving to a new venue next time you do a talk. You're likely to be in the same place. And so a one time fix all, like get the orientation of the lighting and everything sorted once. And then you can repeat that. And that's great. But there are some also free bits of software that help you control that. And all that requires, I think, is a willingness to sort of dive in and play with some software. So. I'm gonna am gonna say the one that's free, but there are lots of uh, sort of upgrades available if you want to pay for stuff like this. But software that does a, a broadcasting role or a production role, um, there's one called Open Broadcasting uh, Software Studio, OBS Studio, which is free. Um, a lot of people used it pre-pandemic to stream video game streamers, for example, on Twitch would use that to, like, I don't know, capture their screen and overlay their little face in the corner, and that's lots of fun. But suddenly everyone realised, oh, that's great for really flexible video call work if you're just projecting your little video rectangle. If you want to take control of that and not just have the camera take it and send it to Zoom or whatever, then you put a piece of software like OBS in between. Um, and Katie uses something similar uh, called ManyCam. Is that right?
2: Yeah, there are a few different options. Ecamm Live is another one. Um, there's, I think if you just search for uh, video production software or uh, video mixing software, I guess, and the, the idea is that the software essentially pretends to be a webcam so if you've got multiple webcams plugged into a computer if you're using a piece of software like zoom or whatever you're using to broadcast you can choose which camera to use from the menu Uh, and obs just pretends to be a camera essentially so if you choose that as the input it will then put out whatever your obs setup is doing and that could be just your video full screen uh, but in obs you can kind of set up a, a what are they called like um, scene, A scene, yeah, that's the word, uh, where it might be your video small in the corner with the thing that you're showing your slides or whatever big, or it might be half and half, or it might be however you want to arrange the screen. You can do lots of quite subtle things with it, but as, as a basic tool, it lets you put different things in different parts of the screen. So, for
3: example, you... um, I, I'm going to pick yeah. a concrete example that we've used, Katie, regularly. It's, uh, we call it DiceCam, but mm. I just got a cheap second webcam and had it on a tripod pointing down at the desk and had some dice underneath it so i could roll dice and talk about some magic tricks to do with dice but then using obs i can put both of those webcam feeds into one rectangle and without even having to share a screen or anything complicated in an online setup i just make my video have half my face and half dice cam and if you wanted to you can then you just get creative you can put anything else you can put your powerpoint through the video if you want to do that sort of thing and once you realize the tools are available The feeling of power is quite heady, in fact. (laughs) uh, I
2: I think there's obviously a a, a massive spectrum of people from someone who doesn't have any experience with this technology, doesn't want to engage with it. You can share the screen on your computer. You can put some PowerPoint slides up. You can share that. It will appear alongside your video, and that's perfectly good for for most purposes. And I guess, again, it's a case of getting someone else to watch what you're doing and tell you what it looks like. Um, And I think as someone who's got kind of an eye on, I call it production values and it it sounds like an overblown term, but it's essentially that like just uh, a little bit of care for making sure that what you're doing looks professional, I guess. Um, So it, it, kind of grates very slightly with me when someone says, oh, I'll just share my screen. And they share their entire desktop and you can see all the files and all this stuff. And then you watch them load up PowerPoint, you watch them hit play on the presentation and you just think there are ways to do that. So you can now present a PowerPoint uh, slideshow in a window and then you just share that window rather than sharing your whole screen. And it's just sort of little, subtle things like that, which I think we've picked up quickly just because we don't want to come across as being uh, unprofessional in that way. And obviously, if you're not experienced with this stuff, it will take a little bit of time to deal with it all but it's I think it's kind of having that care and having that um that willingness to have the thing that you're putting out there look as slick as possible Uh, and things like OBS let you do a lot with that so it's
3: it's obviously I mean these things aren't math specific either which is possibly we're off on some (laughs) maths non-specific tangent but it's really important to mention as in a communication world that paying attention to the details is surprisingly important um and so even if you're in person figuring out how to extend your desktop rather than sharing your entire sort of like holiday snap folders, uh, those things apply as well. And they are useful habits to fall into. And I think that's what Katie's meaning is that when we went into online, the, the same habits we'd formed for in-person just needed new tools to implement in an online situation. So that that's what I think Christy enjoyed learning about one facet on the course that we presented, because these, these skills are part of good communication, whatever subject you're talking about.
0: Well, that's wonderful. There is a lot of fantastic advice in there. And I, I would like to point out, although this is an audio podcast for the benefit of the listeners, you are obeying all of those rules, which you laid out at the beginning there. And I'm not at all. I've got a big window behind me. I look dreadful in comparison. You guys are beautifully lit. Um, to go from the very specific advice you've just given, which will be hugely appreciated, I'm sure, let me go to something much broader. And um, and as you hinted there, Ben, go back to maths. Uh Tell me about communicating maths as opposed to communicating any other science. Is there something unique about communicating maths?
3: This has come up a lot in recent discussions that Katie and I have been part of. There's even a group called Talking Maths in Public um, that Katie and I run a charity, and there's a conversation in the WhatsApp group based on that that's talked a bit about this. I'll put one idea out and then let Katie react to it, and then I'm sure i have more ideas to react to there. But I, I've often said that um, maths is more like the science of ideas. And as a result, compared to the science of, I don't know, physical objects, that some people call physics, and science of biological things like biology, anyway, you get the idea. You can pick up things and hold them and point to them and put them under a microscope. In in maths, those physical tools aren't available. And when you're trying to communicate it, you are there's much less physicality to show people. And that tends to mean that people start talking abstract stuff about ideas without anything to particularly show very easily and that's not always the best medium for an audience to, to pick up what you're trying to get across to them. So the, the art is taking the science of ideas and these abstract forms and trying to make them concrete enough to introduce to someone who may, who's maybe hearing it for the first time and that's why it's different from talking about other science perhaps.
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot of tools that we can use, and again, a lot of this may well be applicable to communicating things other than maths. But uh, things like analogy, there's lots of really nice metaphors that mathematicians often use to try and communicate these things. Because if it is something very abstract, um, you know, it's a lot more helpful if you know you're talking about, for example, modular arithmetic to talk about a clock face, um, and it's the classic sort of analogy that people use. But kind of grounding things in the reality that people are familiar with is always a really helpful thing to do. Uh, Things like telling stories, like putting a a either a, a story about yourself about a time that you've interacted with a thing or even the story of the person who discovered this thing or a story where this piece of maths became useful or became relevant or was applicable. Uh, that's a, a really engaging thing to do. I think storytelling is one of the classic engagement techniques that people often uh, go on about. And th- there's also things like using using surprise, using the unexpected things that come out of mathematics. Sometimes you know maths can let you do stuff that you would Im- wouldn't imagine would be possible um, and kind of packaging that in a way that makes it impressive you know making sure that the point comes across that this is maths that's allowing me to do this impressive thing um, and almost in the same sort of way that a magician would the sort of wonder um, you know the aura at the majesty of the beauty of mathematics in the universe I mean it's a bit overblown but genuinely sometimes you see mathematicians talk about how beautiful maths is as a subject and I think getting that across to people is also really helpful as well um, but it's it's about kind of combining all of these tools Thinking about your audience, I guess, primarily thinking about where they're coming from with it, what their level of knowledge is, what their level of experience is um, and how they perceive the universe to some extent, uh, what they're going to find interesting about it. And if you need to find a real world application of a thing in order to get people hooked into it. As a pure mathematician, this is something that I find um, a slightly slightly difficult pill to swallow. But real world applications are a really nice way to to interest people in maths. Uh, you know, doing a physics demo and then explaining that maths, ex- you know, makes this whole thing work uh, yeah. and that kind of thing. Um, and also occasionally just showing them the actual beauty of the the machine under the hood when you lift the lift the top off it, how things work inside. Also, kind of kind of works.
3: And that's sometimes the tension in mathematics is that a lot of the maths that mathematicians appreciate is um, from other people's point of view, sometimes called the gory detail, like and diving into the gory detail to an audience that's not ready for it has a, a one outcome. And we know that everyone, including good mathematicians, can get put off by something they're not ready to follow along with. And so we keep saying maybe communicating maths is different from other science. In some ways, it's not. You've got to understand what your audience is ready for. And if you haven't thought about who your audience are going to be, then you can't really answer that question. Mm. So you, that that's got to be aware. But then you choose whether to go into the gory detail or whether to gloss over it because that's not what they need to hear what they want to see is the punchline or the the curiosity Mm. and you have to just manage those moments sometimes they're there for the gory detail and sometimes they're not and sometimes they don't think they are but you might be able to squeeze it in if you've got the sort of motivational fuel by showing them some awe-inspiring magic trick and judging that is not unique to maths there's
2: an aspect to this that that kind of yeah, as, as Ben says, it may be that you don't actually need to communicate the gory detail. And I think in an education context, people think of it very much as like a pyramid of knowledge, Oh, we need to explain this before we can explain this. And then we need to explain this. Um, but actually, I've seen some really nice communication, like, you know, Radio 4 programs, where you've got a mathematician explaining some incredibly technical piece of maths. Um, and there was a wonderful moment, I remember once, where someone was explaining something, and they just said, and then, you know, subject to some particular conditions being satisfied, you get this. And it was just, this wonderful side swipe of just what was clearly several years worth of someone's research. Uh, You know, like, obviously, the, the technical details of this proof, but actually, what people care about, what people want to hear about is the result. And often, you can just sort of swipe away this pyramid of knowledge and present something that people will go, that is sufficiently interesting that now I think this subject is something I want to learn more about. And maybe they'll go away and read about it themselves. Maybe they'll never get to the level of maths where they'll understand this particular thing that you were talking about. But it won't put them off it, I guess. And it's mm. it's about your audience. I think this is something that in the communication workshops that we've done, me and Ben very much bang the drum all the way through um, to the point where people get absolutely sick of it, that knowing your audience is absolutely crucial. And one of the things that really winds me up is when people say, oh, I'm doing a, I'm doing a talk. Um, and I say, oh, what's the audience? Uh, Cause I always say that. That's my thing. I always <laughs> say, um, and they say, oh, it's just, you know, the general public. And it, it really on something because that's not a thing, right? There's no such thing as the general public. So if you're doing your talk uh, in the middle of the day on a weekday, the audience is not going to be the general public. It will be people who are available during the day on a weekday. So people who either uh, maybe retired people or school groups who've been brought in or, uh, you know, people who are sufficiently interested in your talk that they would take a day off work in order to come to it. You know, it will give you a very specific subset of people and you need to be aware of that going into whatever it is you're doing and you know I'll I'll consider when I think about an audience for an event I'll think okay my audience here is year nine students who are coming to an event on a Saturday morning who've been chosen by their school so they're probably quite keen they may not necessarily be as knowledgeable but they might be uh you know more prepared to put up with doing something until they understand what it does you know like the there's a lot of subtlety to it that you need to kind of factor in when you're designing, uh, not just a talk, but actually on the fly. As you're doing the talk, you need to kind of adapt to what people are re- reacting to, what what the responses are that you're getting and that kind of thing. That's something um, I
3: wanted to pick up on, that the yeah. um, there's no such thing as a general audience. But what you might see occasionally is someone who's experienced at communication in general, taking what looks like to be what they thought of as general audience, and making it work and then doing the same talk to an audience which is very different and somehow making that work and what you're seeing then is them being aware that there is no such thing as a general audience that they're always reacting to what's in front of them and adapting it in these subtle ways by getting audience feedback, by looking at their eyes, by asking questions in such a way that they get some responses to adapt it for the audience and they might change the structure of their presentation or workshop or event based on that subtle feedback but it's not that they are expecting all the audiences to be the same that they're just doing it slightly more an unconscious live level and that's what comes with lots mm. of exposure to different audiences it can look like though they're just planning one talk uh, for any audience and, and i don't think that's true and it's an illusion we need to sort of bust
2: well <laughs> equally i've seen that done badly though right well true we, well, i mean Someone i feel like we've all seen the talk.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, I'll do the same yeah. talk
3: uh, to the PhD yeah, students I'd, as to the year seven student. No, doesn't I'd doesn't work.
2: Literally never forget the time I saw, I think it was actually a Nobel prize winner come and do a talk at the science festival and they handed a USB stick with their slides onto a person and they said, put that up on the screen. And then during the talk, they just went, Oh, I'll just skip these seven slides in the middle. I don't need these. I'm thinking you knew you were coming to do this today. You knew how long the talk needed to be and you knew roughly what the audience was going to be. So you knew ahead of time, you weren't going to use those, slides could you not have like made a version of the slides that didn't have that bit Because I mean, if we want to go
3: full circle through, and take our advice yeah. about handling tech as well i mean if they'd have an extended desktop and they were on a computer where they could have just skipped those slides yeah. without even mentioning it or even noticing yeah. it, then life would have been better too but we're yeah. i think we're being pedantic in a Talking about the things that annoy us about unprofessional presentation that are easily solved, and hopefully that's the mm. message we get.
2: Well, it, this is one of the bits of advice we also give in the workshop: is you've seen people give bad presentations, just don't do that. <laughs> Whatever you've seen them do that you think, oh, that was awful. Why did they do that? Just don't. You know, and I think certainly in academia, there's been this tendency to sort of learn what it means to give a talk or give a seminar or give a presentation. Like you see people giving these seminars and everyone is sort of nodding along, apart from a few people at the back who've definitely fallen asleep. Um, And they're, they're very used to people giving presentations that are unengaging. They're just putting out the content they're just talking to themselves essentially um and then you learn that that's what giving a presentation is um you know in that sort of academic seminar context you see people doing what other people are doing you see people writing papers in the style that of the papers that they've read that are dense and impenetrable and not sufficiently well explained and that's the kind of thing that kind of self-perpetuates I guess unless people are prepared to say no look someone's going to read this someone's going to watch this presentation I'm thinking about my audience I'm thinking about them and what they want to see and what they want to hear and how much explanation they're going to need and that improves it for everyone I think.
1: Something that I really um, noticed and admired uh, in the workshop that you did with us was and you touched a moment ago about um, knowing what your audience is ready for and you know, present giving them the math, only the math that they are ready for. But actually you flipped that around as well. Because when you were throwing in humor, when you're throwing in mathematical magic, you were doing exactly the opposite. You were giving us what we weren't expecting. And then suddenly you'd you'd have a kind of a moment where you just showed us something that we totally weren't expecting. So you were flipping the making it exciting through having us seen something we weren't expecting at all without putting people um out of their comfort zone in terms of mathematics. And that was a a beautiful balance that you did.
3: I think you're right to point out that we're not just saying you can only give an audience uh, what they're comfortable with when they're ready for it. Actually, surprising them, making them laugh, making them gasp, if you can do it, doesn't always Mm. work, but if you can do it, Every entertainer, performer, communicator, teacher knows that that has sort of gold standard value because it provides the motivation for them to want you you've piqued their curiosity. That's the phrase, mm. isn't it? Yeah, and that I'm- gives them the fuel to to spend some effort doing some harder work, either listening to you or trying their own maths.
2: Yeah, that, that's the wonderful thing, I think, is that you need to present it in such a way that they then want you to carry on talking. They want to know what the answer to the thing you just said is. They want to know how that works. Um, and it, it's especially nice. It's a technique that comedians and, and magicians often use is that you get them to realise something. Like you get a penny drop moment in their own heads. And it may be that you've very carefully constructed that. You've set it all up so that you know exactly when they're going to realise the thing. But the fact that they've done the realising makes or it so much more engaging for them
3: even one step back if they've asked the question if like if you basically (laughs) want to answer a question in your talk uh and you say i'm going to answer this question and they're like well i don't care about that question but if you can set up some starting point where that question is the most obvious burning question elephant in the room they're like but why does that and you're like well let me tell you and then suddenly instead of you enforcing your Mm. sort of uh, your ranty lecture that you wanted to communicate—they've asked the question. Now you've got permission to give your ranty lecture in a way that they are—they've <laughs> asked for it, basically. Yeah. And it can be set up, and that—that's again not math-specific, but maybe it is really quite important in mathematics because maths is often, as all audiences know, hard, particularly hard to follow. The reasoning of someone who spent <clears> ages <throat> and hours thinking about it, and you're trying to catch up in a matter of seconds as they do it live—you have to give them some fuel to motivate that hard work of concentration and the surprise or curiosity really helps.
0: On that subject, could I ask you both for an example of something you do currently in your presentations which you really enjoy? Is there a favourite thing which it could be a reveal, it could be a, a question, whatever it is, I'd love to hear it.
3: That's a good question. Like, What is the favourite? I mean, I have some candidates. Katie, I don't want to... Do you want more thinking time? Do you want me to go first? Maybe,
2: yeah, you... go for it, yeah.
3: OK, well, I'll pick one that I have used for probably the better part of 15 years at the opening of a talk which happens to be called The Creation of Number and ends up being about the history of numbers as we use them. And basically, it's a philosophy talk and a history talk and a talk about humanity dealing with uh, trying to understand how the world works. But hey, it's about maths in the end. But I, I asked the question at the very beginning to the audience and give them time to discuss it. Where do numbers come from? And now in the terms of maths discussions, this is kind of a cliche question. What I'm really getting at is, do we think they are created by people or possibly animals or not? In which case they may be discovered and they're out there. But I found very early on that doing a talk, which is quite heavy on philosophical detail, you, they need to have some ownership of that question and so giving them a chance to discuss that question watching the small fights break out as religion gets involved and various people bring up the topic of dinosaurs i guarantee all of these things happen every single time and because i've asked this question enough i have i've literally got some of the qi and buzzers ready to go because i know <laughs> about eight or nine different answers they are going to give me and i know roughly what order they're going to turn up in and if i'm ready on the buttons i'll, I'll trigger the buzzer in, in a pure comedy moment but the thing is that question Sets up the rest of the talk so that it's not quite a reveal, but it's a question which the majority of 16 year olds say, if I'm talking to them, have never thought about, but it's about something they use literally all the time, numbers. And so there's some permission to ask about something they're using all the time. And as soon as you sort of do the teacher fight back any answer they give, I ask another question. And they're like, oh, I came from cavemen. And I'm like, well, what about before cavemen? And like, oh, dinosaurs. And and you can see how the answers are incredibly predictable at this point. But because I know what's going to happen, I can manage the comedy, I can manage the surprise, and I can manage the curiosity. And it's turned into a, a nicely interactive way of starting what's essentially a philosophy lecture, but ends up with some ownership and some fun at the beginning. And so that that developed over years of doing it, but because I now got used to the answers, it's fun to play the game and uh, to follow their curiosity and then realize that. I don't know the answer as much as like any any more than they do and then then we get to talk about what we do know the answers to so that's one example that's a way of working with an audience where you you provoke some question early on and then you can justify answering it in some detail once they have some ownership of it
0: yeah managed spontaneity to a degree yeah
3: well yes and actually that's a really interesting phrase for it and i realize i'm talking more and katie's got some more things to share here but let me comment on that because that's what comedians are using all the time and if you the, the best example i can give is if you go and watch a comedian on a tour and watch them two nights on, on the trot that's a really interesting exercise in communication study because their jokes which you saw the first night which felt spontaneous and absolutely hilarious because they were off the cuff they were razor sharp they reacted to a little heckle and then the same thing happened the next night the same sort of heckle the same reaction and it's still hilarious so you realize Maybe it happened spontaneously once, but maybe also they realised, "Hey, that's quite a useful situation to find myself in." I wonder how we can engineer it and be ready for it. And that is a really good study in how to manage spontaneity, as you said. I think that manage spontaneity is my new favourite phrase for that. I like that.
0: Though. Oh, you flatter me. Thank you, um, Katie. Let's give you uh, an opportunity.
2: Yeah, well, I definitely agree with Ben that this this idea that once you've done a particular talk or a particular thing multiple times, knowing what the wrong answers you're going to get to a question are is, is a really helpful thing. I think my favourite technique, if you want to call it that, uh, is doing the thing that you're talking about. And this is a, a thing that Ben definitely is a, a big fan of. So if you're talking about something... Do a physical demonstration. Find a, a way to make that thing happen in front of people. Uh, so my one of my classic demos that I've been doing for a while now is um, there's, a, there's a classic maths joke about infinitely many mathematicians that walk into a pub and they um, the first one orders a pint and the second one orders a half and the next one orders a quarter of a pint and the next one orders an eighth of a pint and the bartender says hang on and just pours two pints and puts them on the bar and says sort yourselves out um, and it's this this classic infinite series joke and um, but it. Occurs to me, that actually doing that would make it really visible for people. And there was an event at Cheltenham Science Festival every year, run the over ambitious demo challenge. Uh, and as part of that, I did a, a version of this demo. So I got, you know, two pint glasses and I got lots of smaller glasses and set up a quarter and a half and an eight. Uh, a half and a quarter, an eighth, a 16th, a tooth, all the way down to like a 256th of a pint, uh, which is like two milliliters. It's brilliant. And then just started pouring them all into this glass and you sort of watch it getting closer and closer to the top, but then you realise actually it's never going to reach the top. And, and it kind of concretizes that kind of abstract mathematical idea. And I can talk about it. And I had a couple of slides and I did a little bit. And, and this demo has become something that I've done in a few different places, since, so including on an episode of QI, just to one-up your use of QI klaxons, Ben, I've actually been on actual QI. So um, (laughs) it was uh, because the the researchers for that are uh, often around in the sort of science communication scene and they saw me do this at a comedy night in London. And they said, oh, you should definitely come and do that on the show. So we did this and we told the joke uh, and we actually poured the pints uh, on stage on QI. And I think it's a a lovely kind of, like people have said to me that they think that actually seeing it happen makes it so much more meaningful and makes sense so much more than actually just thinking about this abstract idea. And um, there's a really nice example that we use in a, in our communication training that was uh, a engineer I guess mathematician called Hugh Hunt who's based at Cambridge and he was on an episode of the Great British Menu which is not a science show but they had uh, I think it was one of the series the theme was like science and engineering so they invited him on to come and do a little bit of an explanation demo and he did an explanation of why toast always lands jam side down (laughs) right this is (laughs) the classic uh, thing that everyone is aware of is a thing and it turns out there's a physics reason for this Um, and it's not just that the heavy side of the toast gets dragged down towards the floor, it's literally to do with the number of flips that there is time for it to do before it lands on the floor. Um, and he he's sort of doing this, and he's got a bit of toast, and he pushes it off the edge of the table, and it flips over. And he said, "But actually, if the table was four times taller, it would do a full turn and it would land face up." And there's this moment. He doesn't say anything, but everyone watching, everyone in the room, is just going, "Okay, well, let's do that then, right? I want to see that. I want to see it happen because it, there's this instinctive like, ah." Well, I don't quite believe it, but I will believe it if I see it. And he does. And the next thing you see is he climbs up on the table and he holds this plate four times the height of the table off the floor and pushes the bit of toast off the edge of the plate. And it does it and it lands face up. And you just think that's a wonderful demonstration. It's it's proved the thing that he said to whatever extent. A demonstration is a proof as a, as a mathematician I shouldn't necessarily take experimental data as proof but whatever um but it also it's the thing that people wanted and it's that same thing we're saying before that you kind of you can make them want you to do something then when you do it it's not just the thing that you're doing to them it's a the thing that they actively sought for you to do and Doing the thing, I think, is a really nice uh, sort of technique to kind of don't just talk about something if there is a way for you to physically do it in front of people. I'm such a big advocate of physical demos,
3: particularly because maths is this science of the ideas and those ideas are abstract, but they have concrete consequences or they might Mm. do or they might be able to make predictions about the real world. And that's kind of why we do the abstract stuff. So. It's, we don't fully really close the circle unless we come back to the, but let's see it. And I want to give another one minute example of this um, since we're bigging up colleagues. James Grime is a very well known mass communicator and mathematician. I remember having a chat to him about a new talk he was designing about um, uh, error correction codes and transmitting things securely without losing information. And he was talking about how CD uh, compact discs have error correction built into them so that if they skip somehow, they can still recover. Uh, and part of his talk ends up describing how the mathematics of the of the information means that you can even like have a hole drilled in a CD, and as long as the hole's not too big, it will still play. And then there was this pregnant pause as we were discussing this, and we're like, James, you've got to do it on stage. You've got to drill a hole in the CD and play it. And so actually now he does a talk where that's his sort of finale. He takes a One Direction seat. It's always One Direction for some reason. No one's vote to destroy that. Put a hole in it uh, and try and play it. And. That physicality of using the mathematics for something and then saying, wait, does that actually work? And then actually seeing it as part of communication, whether you're doing a video or a live show or something, Katie's idea of just actually do it. If the question is, could we actually do it? If the answer is even possibly yes, consider trying to do it. It very
0: much subverts the expectations of mathematics as well. It's not something you're used to doing experiments in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful, um, Christy. I think we've probably got time for a- another question or two before we let Ben and Katie get back to their lives. Uh, was there anything you wanted to ask?
1: I loved the thing that you did, Katie, um, uh, during the workshop. Is you got out your your sponge bag, your toolkit of what you always travel with <laughs> you. So now this is moving away from the um, uh, virtual, and this is to um, the in person. And it was just, a I think, there was a lovely top tip of things to bring with you. When you are going to give a presentation?
2: Yeah, well, it, it's it, like it's obviously developed out of necessity. Having gone and given presentations and turned up and found, oh, there isn't one of these things. Oh, okay, I maybe should have brought one. Um, so I've got a lot of the sort of fairly obvious, you know, cables and connectors and things to make my laptop talk to a projector and all of that kind of stuff. I second that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's a, a set that you will evolve depending on your particular laptop that you've got and the kinds of places you tend to go. And, you know, a lot of places have a pretty good setup now and you just turn up and plug it in. But for example, I have a map which requires lots of different adapters and that kind of thing. Um, but I also like to carry um, something that will allow me to entertain a room full of people for about 15, 20 minutes in the absence of anything else. Um, Because I've definitely had the experience of, oh, the projector has decided it's not playing today. Uh, You know, we're going to need to get someone from IT to come and sort this out. Or um, even just, you know, the, the plans have changed. We need someone to fill for 20 minutes. So I carry a Rubik's Cube. Um, and I have a demonstration uh, with Rubik's Cube that I've done quite a lot of times where I solve the cube while listing world records for solving the Rubik's Cube there's also a lot of things to say about the group theory behind it and the the sort of nice abstract maths and that you know it's a really nice sort of concrete real world example of something that is uh, at its heart basically algebra quite a quite a pure bit of maths um, I also carry a deck of cards because as Ben certainly <laughs> knows there are any number of uh, nice mathematical card tricks and magic tricks that you can do with a deck of cards um, and some of them in, in a lot of ways you can be quite interactive you can get volunteers from the audience you can get you know people people involved in that way as well so I, I have this sort of fallback emergency uh, kit of things um, and it's you know spare batteries for the clicker and you know th- things like this that I almost never actually need um, but that has, I guess, essentially just evolved over the experience that I've had of doing things and having things go wrong every time that happens. A new object goes in the bag, just in case for, for next time. I don't it know if you've like, got uh, anything in your kit, Ben. That... It, it sounds yeah, like a long I car could...
0: journey with kids. In all honesty, it sounds like a it's pretty much much. <laughs> if you've got something that will
3: be suitable for that, then probably put it in the bag for entertaining random mm. passers by if you're stuck <laughs> without a projector. It's, it's interesting how reliant on projector screens we now are. That we, you know, I remember the time when that you couldn't project your computer screen onto a projector but you had to use ohps and and then then the same advice though was like what if your ohp goes bang in the middle what are you going to do and so adding to the cards uh, and the ruby's cube great ideas a bag of dice is really helpful uh, particularly yeah. if you can then dish them out to a smaller audience if, if yeah you'll never get them back but just hey whatever uh, tech wise i definitely take uh, i've learned the hard way I'm, I'm waving this at the camera i know that's unhelpful for a podcast but as a, a small second monitor uh and this is not necessarily at the cheap end of the tech things, but it has been life-changing for me in that whenever I now present, I take my laptop and I have to plug into a projector and I usually extend my desktop so that they can't see my laptop thing. But then it means that if anything is uniquely on the projector that the audience needs to see, it unless it's being somehow duplicated, I can't see it in front of me. And so I have to sort of twist my neck to look at the screen. If I have a little portable second monitor, it doesn't have to be big, um, and I've got a USB one that doesn't need a a display cable then I can duplicate the projector behind me in front of me and I guess in the professional trade they'd call it a comfort monitor so you can see what's on the big screen behind you but being able to rig up one of my own means I've used it every time for the last 10 years now (laughs) that I can do demonstrations that I'm doing interactive and live which has a certain sort of appeal on stage but I can look at the screen in front of me instead of craning my neck and using a keyboard and trying to type behind me. so that that changed my presentation habit and that's a tech thing along with the the dice and in fact i also carry a book uh usually usually when i'm leaving the house i'm like oh the book's gone i just grab a random book off the shelf uh, and i use that book in a a magic trick where i claim to uh well i clearly actually memorize the entire book (laughs) uh but that's sort of i'm not i'm not going to give all the details away i'm sure you could guess there are various ways of doing it it's a classic trope of magic the book effect where you claim to do something physically impossible with memorization there's various ways you can use math to do it and that's a useful thing that doesn't need a projector and it's a physical prop and that'll keep us busy for as long as we need.
2: Mm. (laughs) I think on on the topic of being over reliant on projectors I think that is also a thing that that we try and think about so I've done quite a few uh, certainly short bits, like if I'm doing a 10 minute bit as part of a longest show or whatever, in the sort of comedy or entertainment context, a lot of science festivals now have variety shows where they put on uh, a bunch of different people. But I've tried quite a half, quite hard often to develop bits that don't need any slides. Mm. Um, and some people I've talked to have said, God, that's terrifying. Like, God, how could you manage without any slides? And you don't like, I don't want it to be a crutch. I don't want it to be a thing that I need that I rely on. Um, And obviously it's very useful to have slides, but it depends what you're using them for. And I mean, Ben and I could go on for hours about bad slide design and about not putting too much information on slides because otherwise everyone's just standing there reading it. Um, But mostly when I use slides, I'm just putting up a picture of something or I'm putting up a single word so that people know how to spell the thing I've just said so they can look it up online. Right. It's it's not for me. It's not about the information coming through on the slides. So often I'll be able to do a bit where I literally just stand and talk to people or I've got a physical prop that I do a little demo with um, that that will quite happily fill 10, 20, even half an hour um, because I think it's important to be able to work without slides as well. and. Um, it's a definitely a very instructive thing. If you are someone who's very used to working with a slide deck to think about, could I do this without using a slide? Could I do this? Could I leave out this slide that I usually have for this bit and instead talk directly to people? And it, maybe it's more engaging. Maybe it feels yeah. more human to just kind of be having a chat with them and, and kind of using your gestures and your facial expressions to kind of communicate something.
3: I think that's a helpful specific bit of advice to anyone who's got the privilege of doing a talk more than once is to keep an eye out on the bits or segments of the talk that actually don't need as much of the slide prop as you maybe thought. And usually the first time you do a talk, you're sort of relying on the slides because that's how we sort of write these talks and uh, that's how you remember okay, what
2: you meant to say next. yeah
3: and but that's not how it works best when you do know what you're about to say you realize actually you're not using that slide after all and you probably end up deleting more words every time you revise it or at least I think you probably should in the end you realize that it's just a holding picture really perhaps uh, and actually the story you're telling is there in your hands in your face in your voice and that's a good thing to look for but it takes time to to sort of emerge out of a talk quite often
0: well, this has been an absolutely fabulous mixture of uh, specific advice and broad uh, impressions and thoughts, and I've enjoyed every moment of it. Um, I think we'd probably better let you go back to your day now. Can I ask before you do, uh, what does the rest of the day hold for you?
3: Well, uh, later on today, we are running a test, Katie and I are working together again, uh, running a, a test event for an event happening tomorrow night called the Clopen Mike Night. Uh, and by the time you hear this out there, th- this Clopen the Mic may well have passed, but uh the Clopen Mic event is uh, what it sounds like. It sounds like an open mic event, but it's got a sort of mathematical joke in there, which I'll let Katie explain in a moment. But the idea <laughs> being that actually it was a an online uh, evening event, short event for mathematical communicators to try out some material, and that's what we set up for. So tonight we're doing some setup and tech for that. Katie, do you want to explain about the Clopen Mic?
2: Yeah, it, we struggled for a while with a name, but we wanted it to indicate that it was a mathematical variety night, that you could basically expect anything and everything to be there. Uh, but actually, it's not quite an open mic night in the sense that you can't just rock up and, and you know be on screen. Uh, so it's sort of both open and closed. And Clopen is one of these brilliant maths terms that's got a funny name that is something that is both open and closed uh, which mathematically sounds great but actually it turns out it's mostly quite trivial things like the empty set is both open and closed but it's it's a nice idea and you you know it's it's a thing for maths um, but yeah the Club the and Mike night uh, we're hoping we're, we'll sort of run it on a semi-regular basis anyway so if you look it up you'll find the website and you'll see if there's any future ones uh, due to happen down the line um, I, I've also got I've got so much going on this week. I've got a little bit of prep for the teaching that I'm starting in a couple of weeks uh, with my students. So I mentioned I do a bit of lecturing. Uh, I actually teach on a degree course for um, maths teachers. So people who are going to become maths teachers. So I'm teaching them the maths that they learn at university level, but they're also at the same time doing other lectures on teaching theory and, and the, the sort of content from a PGC course that's spread across three years so uh, they are both maths undergrad students but also really interested in the ways that I'm explaining things and the nice analogies and the, the techniques that I'm using so it's quite a fun uh, thing to teach on and I've got a, a bit of prep to do for that uh, and I'm also going out to a conference in Germany next week called the heidelberg laureate forum uh which is a, a, a kind of collection of mathematical laureates so people who've won uh, fields medals or able prizes or or kind of top level maths prizes and uh, computer scientists as well doing lectures and a bunch of phd students in maths and computer science uh, and i'm going out there as part of the press, press team to write blog posts about things that are happening there so uh, i've got a little bit of prep to do for that as well but um yeah busy week
0: <laughs> yeah wonderful well you both have the most tremendous and inspiring careers and thank you for sharing that with us over the past hour or so it's been a real real treat uh so uh, anyone who wants to find your websites the links will be in the show notes and uh, please do because you will find a lot of delight and interest there as well
1: Thanks thank you, you both so much i'm sure everybody now realizes why i couldn't wait to have you on this um podcast series so thank you